0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool headed and nuanced format. We are joined today by Ben Smith. He is the author of Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. And he's been on the podcast circuit, but we're going to break down the week's news, including some really interesting stories about the new CEO of Twitter, the latest on Google's uh, new products at Google I.O. We're also going to cover Tucker Carlson moving his show to Twitter and uh, CNN's interview with Trump. And at the end, we'll round out with some discussion of Ben's book. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on this uh, broadcast. And we're also joined, as always, by Ron John Roy. Welcome, Ron John. Hey, Alex. Happy Friday. Listen, I have a bit of a crackly mic today, so I just want to apologize in advance. Uh, we'll have it fixed by next week, but definitely want to post the audio. And I think we should just get started by talking about the big story of the week, which is that Twitter finally seems like it's going to have a CEO other than Elon Musk Uh, the washington post has reported that elon musk has selected nbc universal's chairman of global advertising and partnerships linda Yaccarino, to be the new ceo of twitter ben i'm curious what do you think is the case that Yaccarino can be successful inside twitter someone from a big network coming over to Um, a social network i mean in some sense she's
0: the best imaginable hire for him and um you know, if if the first thing he had done was hired her and turned the company over to her, like the ad industry and the markets would have totally fallen in love with the story probably. She's, you know, the advertising world is like a real kind of like community where people know each other and she is just a total pillar of that community. Somebody descri- I actually don't know her politics. There've been lots of speculation about her politics based on like her Twitter followers and things or who she follows. Um, she's certainly perceived inside the industry as like the one Trump supporter who everybody in that industry loves. Um, I, I, I don't, again, but I, I've never talked to her about it and don't know her 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 actual politics. But the perception of her, like among her friends, is that like they forgive her her you know deviations to the right because she's such a pillar of that community. And so, to the degree that, um, yeah, I mean they had a really big ad business that and they and they couldn't and their costs. You know, were swallowing every dollar they brought in. I mean, in a kind of normal world, you'd be like, wow, like maybe she could bring back that huge multi-billion dollar ad business that, that Elon trashed. And the costs could stay low and good for Twitter. I mean, it sounds like her title is CEO, but she's actually the head salesperson. Um, and Musk is going to continue to run product. And actually, even pre-Musk, the knock on Twitter was that the out-of-control product people ran the place and would never listen to the ad side. Um and the core problem with its ad business isn't that you know they didn't have well-liked salespeople, it's that Musk was doing things that advertisers hated, like bringing you know, Nazis back onto the platform. And 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 you know, bring and give and promoting Tucker Carlson is something advertisers hate on Fox and it's something they'll hate on on Twitter. So I, I think that it just like if she actually gets input on the product maybe it'll bring advertisers back if she's just going out and sort of selling what elon is doing to the market it's hard to see how that really works
2: yeah do you guys think one this is actually going to happen or do you think this is another elon musk grab the news cycle and uh try to put some kind of positive spin on the twitter as a company and i guess and the second thing what would she have to do to actually gain the trust of advertisers back? I mean, is it like Elon stops tweeting? Is it they actually have to come up with some kind of new innovation around their ad products? Because I think Elon, I mean, his Twitter feed obviously is a negative for advertisers anyways. But Twitter's ad product was not very good for so many years. Like, I mean, it never came close to where Facebook and Instagram and all these other even TikTok got to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, let's see. I mean, I think, I actually'm not sure Elon's personal tweets. Like, it, you know, if she can say, look, the chairman of our company sometimes tweets weird stuff, but lots of people tweet weird stuff, and he's not making, and he's not the one making decisions about what gets shown next to your ads, that's probably fine. If, you know, but if they're getting complaints from customers and employees that their ads are turning up on neo Nazi, with adjacent to neo lots of neo-Nazis and that the platform... Or just that the platform is Fox News. Like, that's sort of probably an unsolvable problem. Like, not that Fox doesn't have a good advertising business, but, you know, she's coming from NBC, one of the world's great advertising companies that just, you know, rakes in billions and billions and billions of dollars um, by selling morning tell you know, The Today Show, or, you know, a range of primetime dramas that are, like profoundly inoffensive basically because that is ultimately what advertisers want and and, and i don't know i mean and, and the real problem i mean i think the ad products on twitter were always a mess but also the appeal of twitter was that you were as an advertiser sort of plugging directly into the culture and into the sort of in, into the conversation and the but the if the conversation is a nightmare you probably don't want to do that and i think there's just a question of whether she's empowered to move the product back to a place where advertisers want to be cuz they actually like people complain about the advertising product. Maybe, you know what was it a 7 billion dollar advertising business and that that Elon has knocked down maybe 50 or 60% but like that's that's a big business that's not I would I would be, I would like to have a 7 billion dollar advertising business at semafor.com which all your viewers should sign up for
1: Yes. So look, it, it does it does seem kind of impossible, though. I mean, if there's no way to shift the Twitter product, in my opinion, to something that's going to actually appeal to NBC advertisers. Right. The whole thing is Twitter has tried to appeal to these brand advertisers, but it's been a direct response platform measured against the you know type of advertising you would do on Facebook or Snapchat and hasn't been able to deliver I think that's an unfair comparison measured against
0: Facebook Facebook is the world's best advertising mousetrap but measured against the New York Times or yeah. you know any other news publisher because ultimately they have the downside of being kind of in the news business I think they build a huge you could say they were the biggest news news advertising business in the world like I think they you know they managed to lose money on that quite large business but you know they had these dec- I think like they had advertisers who liked them, advertisers who were sick of them, you know, whatever. But but their biggest problem was that they were losing money, not that they weren't selling ads, I think.
1: Uh, yeah, that'll be the task. I mean, if you're tr- going to try to bring someone in to change the advertising business, she definitely makes sense. But it's also interesting that Elon has like been strongly opposed, not strongly opposed, but been trying to shift the company away from advertising. Maybe this is an admission from him that he does need that those advertising dollars and is bringing in a heavy hitter from a network to do it.
2: Yeah, what's most
0: interesting to me is that he could have brought in a CEO whose real experience was in building subscription consumer products or um, te- or, or building, like, linear television for a network that was based around Tucker Carlson or someone who had worked on, you know, the creation of, like, Alipay or WeChat or one of these everything apps he talked about. But he really brought in, you know, like, one of America's leading ad salespeople. And so, like suggests that they think the ad business is where they're going.
1: Right. In which case you would have to have almost like a, you you if you're Elon, you'd probably want to wipe clean the first six months of running Twitter and try to start over. Are you telling me it's not going to be a payments app
2: and an everything app and a subscription service and all of the I above? I mean, I do hope
0: Lindy Acarino got some kind of paperwork that gives her recourse and gets her paid if tomorrow he decides, actually, never mind. Because his description of what she does as CEO in a tweet was not what a typical CEO does. Typical CEO runs the company. He sort of said, well, I'll run the company and she'll sell the ads.
1: Well, she's going to have some inventory to run against because Tucker Carlson this week announced that he's going to be bringing his show to Twitter. And it's going to be interesting to see because um, this type of stuff, as you noted in in Semaphore, doesn't typically work on, on Twitter. I think you had somebody who had used to work at Twitter talk about what the problem is with programming on the app. And they refer to it as doom scrolling versus doom staying, right? And he said the notion or this person said the notion that Carlson could build a significant video business on Twitter was stupid. So what do you think the prospects are that this app might actually be programmed, um, you know, like a cable network and have more tune in programming? I mean, Elon also reached out to Don Lemon told him told him to. Do his show on Twitter as well.
0: What Elon's doing is he is sort of speed running through everything Twitter's already tried, which doesn't say maybe it was early. I mean, who knows? But there was a sort of a thought in, gosh, I think in 2015, maybe when Anthony Noto was there, that they could that linear television that they you know they could basically develop a slate, and one of the ways to access Twitter was sort of as an on-demand video film. platform or as a live video platform. And DN this show we produced at Buzzfeed, was part of that strategy, and it was pretty good, and so I think it kind of survived past having a strategic logic for them. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the big problem is, I mean, I as a Twitter addict have never probably watched more than a minute linear on Twitter. Like it's just, it's not the behavior of the user to lean back and, it, you know, it's it's a lean forward doom platform, not a lean back doom platform. and. Maybe there's some experience or subscription service where you would go to Twitter and do a thing that's just totally different from the thing you usually do on Twitter. But um I think that's just like a challenge. Like I don't know how I don't know how Netflix shorts are working. You know Netflix has this TikTok like product, but and maybe lots of people go to Netflix to use a TikTok clone, but I just think it's harder than people realize. It's just hard to you know to to get people to totally change their behavior on your platform.
2: Elon said, just to remember that he did not, he did engage with Tucker Carlson directly to bring him to the platform, or was he trying to deny that he actually was, he pay him in any way or try to like come up with some exclusive deal?
0: We don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think Musk had said there's no
2: deal, but it's, I'm not really sure what that means. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, it is interesting in terms, especially with like Blue Sky now being the hot new place and uh, where Twitter is trying to go strategically, but I guess it just reminds of any other kind of Musk, uh, Musk business. Do you guys think is Tucker Carlson, would he be reneging on his contract with Fox News or would, what would be the monetary impact on him to make a move like this? I mean,
0: I think the thing with Carlson is he's one of these folks who can probably make even more money than he made at Fox selling his services to the highest bidder, you know, somewhere like Rumble or Newsmax or The Daily Wire. Where where we,
2: does Rumble get the money? Because I saw that, that
0: they're publicly traded.
2: Oh, okay, okay. Because I saw, yeah, the 20 million, 30 million out of nowhere. Yeah, and they've been throwing
0: $10 million deals at like much less famous people. And so, and they're, I think, probably quite desperate to break through because they're clearly not breaking through. And so he'd be worth a lot to them. So there's this trade-off though, where it's like, does he want to make a bunch of money and like no, you know, and you know, have much much less influence. I mean, that's kind of the trade off, right? And there's nowhere that he can go like Fox, where he's gonna where where the I mean, the crazy thing about Fox, he was talking to people who who were kind of persuadable. He's basically talking to elderly regular Republicans and pulling them into this kind of populist crusade. That's a different thing from the Republican Party. Um, he can now, I think, go out and talk to his own followers. But it's a less influent, It's less influential, and there's you know, I mean, I, I think Glenn Beck, in his day, had a lot of heat and didn't really manage to preserve influence. Although I suspect he made quite a bit of money.
1: You know, Ben, it was kind of interesting in your story because you referenced Carlson as the leader of the populist wing of the Republican Party, and you know, to me, I always thought that that was Donald Trump. So I'm curious why you put Tucker in that position and whether you think that part of what he might do is think about running for president in 24.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of how I think of him. Um, yeah, but but I, but I, I, he could run for I, he could certainly run for president. There's certainly a logic to him, like just cynically, like it would it would make it would make, keep and make him hyper relevant, basically, and keep him in the game, just to float the speculation. Although, it doesn't seem like he really has been. He's also been very, I think, part of what sort of radicalized him is a sense that that that, that his enemies were sort of threatening his family and violating his privacy. And obviously if what you want is your is sort of to keep your life private, running for president is a really bad way to do that. Do you think that was real or is that just for show?
2: The um, uh, the I mean, there were to protesters being, being
0: on his door in his home in DC and his wife was pretty freaked out. I mean I think that was real. But but a how people, you know, but he certainly is out there saying super inflammatory stuff and driving protesters to other people's homes and is, I mean, I don't, yeah, I know, but I mean, I do, yeah, I actually do think that part of his current fairly radical politics is driven at least by his own sense that he is personally embattled and threatened, yeah.
1: So we're seeing right now also this move of lots of network TV folks to digital, some by choice, some not exactly by their choice. It's kind of interesting because there is this momentum for digital, but you are also looking at what's happening in the streaming wars, and it's ugly. So Disney reported earnings this week. It lost 4 million subscribers. And there's this new narrative that's taking place that the streaming wars are over, right? You had Disney, Netflix, Amazon, the list goes on. Companies trying to program online and thinking that there would be endless growth there for their streaming businesses. And now, like, you're seeing a real tail off with Netflix. You're seeing this, I mean, a massive loss of subscribers for Disney. So. I'm curious, Ben, if you agree with this idea that the streaming wars are over, and if so, doesn't it just leave digital in a much more diminished place versus narrative television?
0: I mean, I guess I don't really buy the distinction anymore between digital and narrative television. I mean Disney is I mean I mean this the sort of the moment when the markets would let you dump unlimited money into streaming for growth certainly is over. And I think it's just a much more mixed picture. I think I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure Disney's losses came in part because they lost the rights to cricket in India, which is a huge, you know, which is a very what? traditional television fight. Like some an Indian broadcaster got the rights and or a streamer, and Disney lost them, and a bunch of people canceled their subscriptions, which is like a totally normal reason people change the channel. And I think it's sort of. I mean, to me, it's more just that this sort of convergence between between the different platforms is competing, is completing the notion that there's this totally different thing called streaming that has totally different economics and that you can invest in infinitely. I mean, maybe, I mean, I think, I don't think it was bad. I mean, it obviously was not a mistake of Netflix to invest a lot and grab a lot of market share, but it does. It's, but clearly that moment has now passed. And so,
2: but yeah, yeah. I, I think this is not the worst thing in the world. I, I part of me even feels, I know, I joked around with John who I write margins with that Ozark, the latest season should not have been done, but was one of the last vestiges of Zerp in that there's just too much capital. So they'll just make anything. I mean, I feel there's so many series that could be movies and just two hours, but instead get stretched out to eight to 10 episodes just because they had to produce that much. So I think from a quality control perspective, it's not the worst thing that uh, streaming services will cut back. Um, but I think what, who's going to win in this? Like, it feels like right now everyone is losing billions of dollars and bleeding money, but still, you know, everyone's behavior. Even my parents now watch streaming services and watch movies on streaming. Like every, it's become so ingrained in our behavior that who's going to win? Like someone has to, right?
0: I mean, it seems like right now everybody's losing, right? But but I guess I actually feel like for if if you're like I think NBC is a very interesting element here, which underinvested in this stuff is now trying to play catch up with Peacock, which feels like it's not particularly catching on. And if you want to stream something amazing, that show Mrs. Davis, which is on Peacock, is fabulous. But I don't think anybody's watching it because it's on Peacock. Um, That said, you know they. built all this in the context of this huge advertising business of Lindy Ecarino's giant advertising business in fact and and it feel and, and you know or sort of remained a television company in a very, in a fairly fundamental way did not transform themselves into a company like didn't transform the logic of their business into this subscription business hedged all over the place and i sort of think that that's what we'll see more of is mixed business models and complicated businesses and Movies getting theatrical releases when that makes sense and less sort of ideology and more kind of calculation. I think when you look at big media businesses like Disney over time and you say, like, hey, what business are they in? Like, what's their secret? The answer is often pretty confusing. It's like, well, they're in like 14 different businesses and like the margins on cruises are pretty good. And but but like they manage them all really well. And like they're these executives like Bob Chapek, sort of like wandering around the mid-senior ranks of the companies with with 200,000 people reporting to them, who's, you know, running businesses that, like, we don't really understand that well, like cruises and parks.
2: Alex, who do you think is going to win?
1: I don't know. I mean, I would have said Amazon. I think that they just have much more incentive to invest the money that the others don't have that, uh, don't have, and they can lose more, and that still works for their business. So i'm on team amazon on this one but i don't know it's it's tough you have to just keep churning out hits and their ability to do so has been kind of limited so what do you think rajan
2: yeah amazon's an interesting one because at a certain point though as their e-commerce business starts taking a hit and losing money as their margins on cloud start to compress and the business that has been growing you know insanely over the last decade starts to slow a bit where do they look to cut and i think video might be that place because again having video is just an add-on to prime that everyone's going to subscribe to anyway for two-day shipping i don't think is the most compelling place to invest so much money but i mean they still certainly are with the nfl and everything else so i mean they're still making moves but yeah i like i think i'm team nbc I think I'm in for I don't know why Linda leaves when you're potentially at the winning place. But
0: yeah, and it's kind of interesting, right, that NBC, which looked like it was a laggard now looks kind of like it didn't over torque toward it streaming, although, yeah, although it's now frantically trying to catch up. So who knows? I actually converted to Peacock for Eurovision myself, so go figure. Oh. <laughs>
2: One of a Peacock, I'm a proud Peacock subscriber as well. And uh, I mean, they even they're the first place I saw they have like when you pause a show, an ad comes up, which I think is actually like a good, smart ad innovation. So I think Ben's point makes sense is that it's like a commercially driven organization. So they're actually smart about the entire business rather than a pure content first, uh, you know, business that tries to tack on a business model afterwards.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I think building Well, maybe this is it, that if you start building late, but that late coincides with the new economic environment where you're not in the ZERP world anymore, you might actually have a chance to build something sustainable. Okay, let's do, why don't we do one more uh, media story, then take a break and then talk a little bit about your book, Ben. Um, All right, did you guys watch the CNN interview with Trump? So there's been this big debate about, like, whether CNN should have done it in the first place. Um, Some people are like, you know, it's effectively serving as a campaign platform for Trump and others are just like well you you interview newsmakers that's the job of a journalist so Ben I'm kind of curious what you first of all what you made of the interview and second what you think about that debate
0: I have three thoughts one is I think that Caitlin Collins did a very good job that is a very hard thing and she sort of held her ground and really pushed him the second was that the audience was sort of a mistake I think like it, it Felt and sounded like a homogenously pro-Trump cheering squad, which did. I mean, there's a reason they have laugh lines on TV, right? Like it, it conveyed a sort of sense of support for him. But and and they could have done it. They could have avoided that. But the biggest problem is just that like Trump was always going to turn it into a sparring match between heroic Donald Trump and evil CNN, and so like. The thing that cnn is trying to rebrand itself as a neutral platform that is as open to republicans as democrats but trump comes on and doesn't treat it like the platform he treats it like the antagonist and when you're and caitlin has to push him and then he lies a lot and then at the end jake tapper comes on and just sort of eviscerates him for lying and if you're a viewer if you're a viewer, you're either on Trump's side or against him and he for in Trump forces that dynamic. And, and if CNN's goal is to sort of, and it which is totally understandable to sort of reclaim its brand as a neutral news platform, like Trump just isn't going to give you that. Like, that's not why he went on. He went on to show he could go into the lion's den and that requires CNN to be the lion. And so I don't really know how it serves that brand goal. Like they got a modest rating bump, not as much a bump as they got when they got Joe Biden on, but, um, Like that goal of reclaiming CNN's old brand is just, it's very elusive, I think.
2: Yeah, I I do not understand what the purpose of it was. And the CNN CEO, I think it was Brian Stelter, was tweeting about how uh, he talked about how they made news. And again, like the idea is they're supposed to cover the news, not make news. But it's a reminder that he's proud of the idea of actually CNN as a network making news. And I think I, I, I like that point that like, that ben made that you know cnn has to be the lion if he's going into the lion's end because it is if you watched it it was just non-stop back and forth and then afterwards again it felt like we're back in 2016 where Jake Tapper comes on and says the word falsehood which is the most ridiculous word instead of saying lie and saying that he made falsehood over and over again um and again yeah it, it's all it's just like deja but okay. okay but but yeah and but we, the thing is
0: nobody i mean I actually didn't even notice that i thought he did a pretty good job fact checking trump but like there's no trump supporter who is like oh i'm glad he said falsehood rather than lie and then there's no but A, who dislikes Trump, who's like, well, I'm glad they fact-checked him afterward. Like there was no constituency. For no, no
2: and, and it, the, I think we all learned that fact-checking is not an effective way to deal with Donald Trump. Like that's, it's just almost irrelevant to the whole, like, you know, the idea, like we got him, we, we caught him and we showed
1: Maybe I'm the only one that feels this way in, in the group, I don't know. I'm curious what Ben thinks, but I think it was actually good to interview him. I mean, he is the front-runner in the Republican field. He is likely going to be the nominee. The idea is, if you're in journalism, you're going to ask this person questions. And I think that um, was what Chris Lick said afterwards was, was pretty interesting, which is, like, America has a better understanding of this candidate now than they did it oh, in, in yeah, the first like, place. Like you, That's the Like job. everything yeah. involving Trump, this was mutually assured destruction.
0: This was bad for CNN and bad for Donald Trump. Congratulations, everyone. Why?
1: Yeah. Well, why bad for Trump? Because he's out there talking about abortion, the most of right, all. Right, exactly. And by the way, like, I mean, that's what isn't... I mean, I think that what journalism should do is also, like, get these people to talk about the things that they might not want to talk about. Have them clarify their positions.
0: Oh, for sure. I think it was good journalism. Actually, that maybe is as wish I should say. I think it was good journalism. Unfortunately, like, the tr- reality of cable news is that it's television. Like, that's its deepest reality. And, and it was not affect like it wasn't good television it was just good journalism
1: i think oh, i thought i i don't know i found it was it entertaining, entertaining television i mean
0: <laughs> i guess i just mean like it didn't i think cnn was trying to do a thing with it and it did not do that thing
1: right Ben. i'm curious there's some, does, oh go ahead Europe, but
0: maybe that's too cynical i like i do think it's good that they that i mean of course you sort of have no choice like if trump were downstairs and wanted to like join this podcast i would let him in and you know we would talk to him
1: all right, let's take a break and come back and talk about your book, Ben. We're here on Big Technology Podcast, Friday edition with Ron John Roy, the author of Margins on Substack, Ben Smith, editor in chief of Semaphore, and also the author of Traffic, Genius Rivalry, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. It's out uh, in all bookstores available now, so you can go pick it up. We're going to talk about the book and some more media stories, including, well, and some more tech stories as well, including Mark Zuckerberg's recent Jiu-Jitsu championship, coming back right after this.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast
0: Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Ben Smith, the author of Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ranjan Roy is also here with us. He's the author of Margins on Substack. Ben, I'm kind of curious, like you've done uh, kind of the most extensive podcast book tour, maybe in history. Um, Have you have you learned anything that you didn't know, uh, you know, about the stuff that you were covering as you went about this podcast tour? Like what what's what are the new perspectives, angles or facts that have come to light for you um, since you've been speaking about this book?
0: Yeah, actually, this the single thing that I felt most like, oh, this was such an interesting conversation, and I wish I'd done more of it. Is you know the book sort of traces the sort of origin story of this this moment, starting in Manhattan, sort of back in the aughts, and through these characters, Andrew, you know, Jonah Peretti and Nick Denton, and also Andrew Breitbart is a really big character in it. But Breitbart, you know, died in twenty twelve, and um, I think twenty twelve. I may have the exact date wrong, but died. You know, really. Just as he was becoming this sort of major public figure, and um, one of I was talking to somebody on a conservative podcast who said, you know, you, you you should have picked up that story because this whole world of conservative media now is really a fight for his particular legacy among his acolytes, and that Ben Shapiro worked for him, and Ben Shapiro is built, you know, is built what is I think you know in some sense. It's not anti-Trump, but it is basically Republican, a Republican conservative media outlet that is trying to, you know, that connects with younger people and that is not a like Trump boosting platform at the Daily Wire. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon turned Breitbart into this crusading, hyper politicized, immigration focused, racist, pro-Trump outlet. Um, and, that, and that there were these different streams kind of coming out of his death from people, Ben Dominic at The Federalist is another, who had been in some way or other connected to him. And I just think that's actually a great story that somebody ought to write.
2: Yeah, I think for me, reading the book, the most fascinating part really was seeing all these kind of lines drawn, Ben Shapiro working for Breitbart, even I, I had no idea about Breitbart being part of the Huffing Post, Huffington Post founding story and how that all played out. So... I think seeing all these lines drawn was really interesting um and actually i mean even thinking about tucker carlson going to twitter today but or you know in this day and age one of the more interesting parts to me was the line between kind of jezebel and the culture wars or cancel culture or just kind of how culture plays out on social media or the commenting in gawker or Kinja, let's say um and how that kind of played out and evolved into Social media battles of today. Um, yeah, I, I, there's no question, even from my side. I just wanted to yeah. Relay I, mean, I that think those part.
0: were for me like, yeah. I mean, I would say in terms of sort, of sort of what surprised me in the reporting of the book, those those were the things also. Like that, first of all, that when you sort of go back and look at the that early world of social media which like thought of itself as progressive and I think mostly was an Obama supporting world of young people who thought what they were doing was in part getting Barack Obama elected um, including the people at Facebook you sort of look back and it's like oh look like there's Andrew Breitbart, there's Gavin McInnes co-founder of Vice and the Proud Boys, there's Chris Poole who created 4chan working out of BuzzFeed although you know there's um, Steve Bannon kind of hovering around Huffington Post and and, and then as the story progresses, they're the protagonists. I mean, they're the ones who actually inherit the earth at some level and certainly inherit the internet. And that was, even though I had lived through it, kind of a surprise to me to see how that was sort of embedded in the whole thing from the start. Um, and the other big surprise actually was Jezebel. Like when I was sort of thinking, you know, who? what's the, um, like the real moment of, like the or like the first time you really see what like what the internet feels like in twenty sixteen, it really is two thousand and seven on Jezebel, where they both had this incredible kind of like power to make social change, often in like both in sort of serious ways and in really fun silly ways. Like my favorite thing is they launched with a um, a Photoshop bounty, where they offered a ten thousand dollar bounty to anybody who could co- who could come up with an unretouched image from a glossy magazine, and they somebody actually like stole a photo from Redbook. And of Faith Hill, where she still had her freckles and her smile lines, which had been photoshopped out. And and that was you know kind of a metaphor for what they were doing overall, which was preventing sort of something like more honest than the mainstream media. And yet, also, in particular, the women at Jezebel in 07 developed this totally pathological relationship with their commenters who drove them nuts, who were, um, you know, who sort of tried to keep them in line when they strayed and canceled them in a certain way when they really. when they got out of line, I don't know. And it's really, it was interesting to see like, oh wow, this was all here then.
2: Wait, so, but one thing I'm curious, like Jezebel, and I thought that was really interesting how it came out at a time where it really was a reaction to overly glossy Photoshopped fashion magazines and kind of taking on big media. And then as you see, Gawker is going against more establishment media, Buzzfeed rises through going against establishment media. Like, did that w- culture eventually become the establishment? Because in some ways it felt like that would have been the ending. But then if you look at where companies are right now, and we all just literally said NBC is going to be the big winner in s- streaming video, like, did establishment media win?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think these old brands had more power than we expected. and absorbed a lot of like the, I mean, for better and for worse, the ideas and the people from these upstarts, but ultimately, you know, it turned out to have a lot more staying power than we thought. Um, I mean, that obviously was surprising to me.
1: Ben, one of the through lines in your your interviews has been looking at the delusion word in your subhead. And, you know, it presents itself as a sort of fact and in, in the subhead, the word delusion is there without a question mark but you've now started to ask like whether it was delusional or not and you know from your perspective what i've heard is that the idea was to build a media company uh, which i'm talking about buzzfeed news here build a media company that would distribute its its um, news on the social platforms and eventually get paid for it get paid to program it's like we talked about the am to dm show that we did on twitter when we were at buzzfeed news Um, I, you know, I, I like actually hearing you speak about that over the course of your interviews was definitely like illuminating to me in terms of what the bet was. And I've been trying to think myself, like, was this delusional or was it not? And, you know, on one hand, like it it makes complete sense to go all in on a business strategy, but on the other hand, like there actually is money to be made from these platforms. And the question is like, whether it was... On the scale that BuzzFeed hoped, and whether like a whether the delusional part was like to think it was going to be that big versus like to think it was going to be there at all. Well,
0: well, well. These companies are very they're they're very interested in what they call creators, which is a sort of term invented by the platforms to ensure that like they interact with atomized individuals rather than cartels who could exercise leverage. I mean, it's sort of like Uber would like to would like to connect to individual drivers not to taxi fleets wow, that, for a reason that is a um, hot take and i think and i think google and i think google and everybody else you know would like to incentivize individual creators but just not want them organizing into taxi fleets and so they will pay them as little as they can get away with paying them to stay on the platform but they won't share they're not going to share the value the way you know com the way like comcast as the you know where the way the way the cable company shares the value with viacom i mean and i think the question is would was there ever a possibility that places the places like facebook would and i think part of the answer what the world that we saw emerging which didn't emerge was one in which there were competing social platforms like it wasn't just one facebook with infinite leverage because it had a monopoly on sort of on on, on attention for a time but that there would be four Facebooks, right? In which case they're each, you know, bidding on the services of the highest value media, wherever it comes from. And again, yeah, we imagined a world where that takes them in this sort of evolution, competitive evolution, upmarket, out of user-generated content, into professional content, and ultimately, you know, creates a sort of a market for media that just absolutely never developed and everybody who didn't think it was going to happen at the time now says so you guys were idiots probably rightly
1: okay why don't we end on our on our fun story of the week um i don't know if you guys saw well i know ranjan saw but mark zuckerberg uh posted some pictures last weekend of him kicking the business out of somebody in a jujitsu uh competition and um ranjan you wrote that uh it sort of shows that's uh, yeah, you, yeah. you show. You wrote that it it was some multitasking going on as he's trying to win the AI AI war and working through layoffs at his company. Um,
2: yep. Yeah, it's, yeah. So for context, it? Mark Zuckerberg posted a photo of him like sitting on a dude's head while beating him up in. Uh, Brazilian Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I had tweeted about how he should not be posting photos of like time consuming hobbies when uh, when Facebook is you know deep into the AI wars and well behind competitors like Microsoft. But also like and 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 I will say this is one of my first experiences of just an entire blue check brigade coming after me. Um You have been commenting that Twitter is getting to be a worse place, but uh that was definitely my first experience my one thing on this is one when you're laying off thousands of people showing that you have a really time-consuming hobby is a bit ridiculous but also when is Zuckerberg going to post a photo of him getting beat up or him losing that's what I want to (laughs) see everything he posts is him he's apparently the strongest most uh, competitive tough person out there when he posts a picture of some guy on top of him then i'll be happy
1: right well i'll just end by saying congratulations to mark zuckerberg for winning a two-person competition (laughs) and uh whenever you want to go in the ring i'm ready to take you on okay thank you so much ben smith for joining us uh traffic is a terrific It's a terrific book, really, really enjoy it. We have people in the comments saying they like it. I'm sure Ranjan liked it as well. So everybody can go pick it up today. It's called Traffic, Genius Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. We'll link it in the show notes and we hope to see you next week. So thank you, Ranjan, thank you, Ben. On Wednesday, I have a really wild interview coming out. Um, I spoke with, uh, I think I should say earmuffs to Ben on this one so they don't get ahead of me on this. But I spoke with uh, one of the people that trained ChatGPT in Africa, um, as part of an outsourced division that OpenAI was working with, and you're not going to want to miss the story. All right, thanks again. Think, and uh, we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.